definitely policymakers pay attention to how people are feeling on those issues. Um, I think it depends on the specific policy issue to determine whether the public's going to actually push the government to do one thing or another, or whether the government's actually going to uh, slowly guide the public in terms of uh, what decisions should be made. This is Asia Insight. Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome to the Asia Insight podcast series by the National Bureau of Asian Research. My name is Carlos Karnikis. I'm a senior vice president at NBR. And in today's episode, we have the pleasure of being joined by Naima Green Riley. Naima is a PhD candidate uh, and Raymond Vernon Fellow at in the uh, Department of Government at Harvard University. And uh, We've recently learned she's going to be, uh, later this year, a professor of politics at Princeton University. Congratulations, Naima. Uh, so uh, Naima is, uh, has, does her research on uh, how states attempt to influence foreign publics through public diplomacy. And she has provided commentary to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, the Aspen Strategy Group, and she's written for The Diplomat, The Washington Post, and uh, also for NBR. Uh, she, in last uh, November, we published a piece that Naima wrote for us um, in our Emerging Voices series on the new normal in Asia, titled uh, Pandemic Persuasions, American Public Opinion, and U.S.-China Relations. Welcome, Naima. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And um, well, why don't we start off by if you could tell us a little bit about your research and uh, maybe help us understand and define this this concept of how states uh, attempt to influence foreign publics through public diplomacy. What does that mean in the context of your of your research? Absolutely. Well, I'm a political scientist. And when I started doing academic work, when I first started my PhD program, I quickly realized that um, there was something that I had observed in the real world, as we say, uh, that wasn't necessarily being fully reflected in academic work on political science, as far as I could see. Uh, So the public diplomacy is something that I would define as the attempt of states or governments to have impact on foreign publics, foreign groups of people, and to impact either their ways of thinking or their opinions of the state that's doing the public diplomacy, or um, even, you know, thoughts or behaviors in other arenas uh, through diplomacy, through things that are overt in nature, programs that are overt in nature. And so states can Uh, engage in public diplomacy through broadcasting. So often people point to public diplomacy programs like uh, the Voice of America broadcast or on the Russia or on the Russian side, you know, RT Russia Today would be an example of Russian broadcasting that actually fits into the public diplomacy category. Or on the Chinese side, China Radio, China Radio International as types of public diplomacy that involve using uh, news sources, using broadcasts, either radio or TV, or sometimes even print nor- news sources to reach other groups of people in other countries. Um, there are sort of face-to-face engagement programs, things like uh, teaching foreign languages at institutes like the Alliance Française, which is a French 
uh, language learning institute that's been set up all around the world, or the Goethe Institute, which is German, which is a German language institute that does the same thing, or the British Council, which is a, a British institution that does very similar things, teaching languages to people in different countries. Um, and then there are other forms of public diplomacy that are sometimes one-offs, uh, in, invitations of uh, people in different countries to come on exchange programs or particular even sort of uh, training programs for right. people in certain countries that can uh, that can basically allow a state's government to start to interact with different groups in different countries. And the reason mm -hmm. why public diplomacy is so interesting to me is before I was an academic, I was a diplomat. I worked uh, at the State Department, the U.S. State Department, sure. for five years, and I did public diplomacy. I was assigned to Egypt and then to China and became interested in the topic. And so I thought that I, once I left government that I would study it. Okay, well, that's, that's very interesting. And so the, the examples you provided, though, uh, you, you're talking about overt methods. So these were, the, I guess, so not including things, the, the disinformation campaigns and covert methods and other, other means that countries might use to, to influence the public. Right. So when we think about influencing publics, there are overt ways and there are covert ways that mm -hmm. governments can try to be engaged with publics. And over the past few years, we started to see in the news lots of information about covert means of trying to influence publics. Uh, when you're an academic, you realize that definitions are very important because if mm. you want to really dig into one topic, it's important to sort of cordon off that topic, really dig deeply into that topic right. and then move to another. So I'm super interested in disinformation as well, but I wouldn't consider disinformation a type of right. public diplomacy. Right, right. So we we had uh, back in November, you you worked on a, a piece for us about looked at uh, American public opinion and U.S.-China relations. And the, the piece was looking at uh, a survey, it was kind of summarizing some of the results of a survey that you had conducted and and uh, also looking at this in the context of uh, of COVID and uh, how perceptions have changed uh, in, in recent years uh, because of the pandemic, but then also because of just broadly deteriorating U.S.-China relations. And uh, can you share a little bit about that that research and then what were the key findings of your, your survey and um, some of the, the key findings that you shared in, in the piece that you wrote for NBR? Sure. Well, I was really excited to write this essay for NBR because it was relevant to the work that I was doing already. Anyone who studies public diplomacy, anyone who looks at governments trying to have impact on public opinion in other countries have to, has to, to some extent, just look at public opinion, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, the piece that I wrote for you all was more focused on U.S. public opinion towards China and how it had changed in the brief period between 2019 and 2020. So as I was doing a study about Chinese public diplomacy in the United States, I actually was doing surveys of Americans in several different contexts that picked up on changes in public diplomacy over the course of the time between September 2019 and May 2020. And Generally, what happened was that attitudes towards China became increasingly more negative. Uh, they became increasingly less favorable. And that's something that I thought was interesting to talk about. And so that piece sort of talks about why we saw that shift happen. Of course, this was a time when the coronavirus emerged, and it was also a time when U.S.-China relations were becoming more and more fraught. Um, and so that piece sort of looks at this shift in public opinion um, over the course of that time period. And then goes on to say what's also interesting is while uh, 
people became more negatively inclined towards China. Interestingly, there was also this positive shift in perceptions of how much influence China had on the world. And so it's interesting to see uh, the negative shift in perceptions, but at the same time, a sense that China was actually more powerful than before. And maybe, you know, I didn't go into depth with my questions. So maybe that was a result of thinking that, you know, the coronavirus had a lot of impact on people's daily lives. Maybe mm. that had to do with the fact that people were seeing uh, China mentioned in the news more often because uh, of the increasing tensions with the U.S. government. But whatever the case, you saw sort of a dual shift in opposite directions, increasingly, increasingly negative views and increasingly uh, greater perceptions of uh, Chinese influence. Were these negative perceptions sort of confined to certain areas? Is this a, a broad feeling, or what was your what were the, the takeaways of the from the survey? In the pandemic persuasions piece, I, I I both talk about my own survey in which I asked a number of different questions. I asked mm -hmm. a general favorability question, and that's a question that's a top line result. So how favorable or unfavorably do you how favorably or unfavorably do you view China? Um, and then also a number of questions that were sort of do you think that China is threatening in these ways, these ways, and these ways? Um, and my questions were based on questions that are used in the Pew Global Attitudes Survey every year. The Pew Research Center has for over uh, a decade done surveys not only of the United States, but of countries all over the world uh, about their views on uh, different issues. And um, the Pew survey in 2020 showed a similar trend that was negative in terms of how people were viewing China. But then when you dig deeper and you look at is specific issues on specific area areas, it seems like there's like a proportional shift, right? So as views overall become more negative, views on particular topics also become more negative. You mentioned this uh, awareness piece where respondents viewed that China was getting more power or, or did they, they view this as kind of this kind of rise of China. How, how are you able to, to, to measure that as you in your, in your survey results? The particular survey that I did was a survey that was given three times mm -hmm. um, between fall of 2019 and May of 2020. So it was given once in around September 2019, again in December 2019, and then again in May 2020. And this was a small survey, about 500 Americans sent through a professional mm -hmm. survey company. And in the survey, I actually asked people about a range of countries. So not just China, but I asked some questions about how they viewed France, uh, Mexico, Russia, China, and on the influence question, I actually also asked them about the United States. So I asked, how much influence do you feel that country X has on the world? And country X was all of those countries. So they had to do this. They had to answer this question for all of the five countries that I just named. Mm -hmm. And then there were four options that were basically multiple choice. So everything from, you know, has no, no influence at all to has a great amount of influence. There might have been five options, four or five. But the point is that. Over the course of time between September and May, for the other countries that were that I asked people about, there were there wasn't a significant statistically significant shift mm -hmm. in how much people perceived influence to change. But for China, there actually was a statistically significant shift in opinion, showing that people actually found China to be more influential over the course of time. And I just measure that by uh, the change from one 
answer option to another. So people were indicating greater uh, <laughs> senses of, of influence at the later time period. Yeah, I noticed also, as I recall in that piece, you had asked about a specific recall of uh, if, if people were, were familiar with the, the names of, or of Xi Jinping, for example, or, you know, mm-hmm. the various leaders and that the, there was some, uh, that there was a greater awareness even of the, um, the, the names, the, you know, the, of, of Xi Jinping as opposed to, say, leaders of other countries. Right. Because another thing that you might say is that, you know, it'd be interesting just to, see, to, to to be able to see how much people sort of know about a country and that mm-hmm. could have some sort of right. impact on uh, that. That might indicate, you know, the degree to which they are paying attention to that country. Right. And right. so right. I gave people quizzes about different yeah. countries in the world uh, during the survey. And it, it was multiple choice. So I had, you know, other answer choices for who the uh who the president of China was, and they were all sort of plausible uh, answers. One was like Deng Xiaoping, who's a previous mm-hmm. uh, leader of China, and then some other uh, names of leaders from the region. Um, but more people recognized the name Xi Jinping in May than they did in September on these surveys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, what about the relationship between? I know this is an area that you've you've looked at as well as the the relationship between public opinion. And foreign policy. And could you tell, talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. And I think that you've actually hit upon an area of uh, a lot of focus right now for many yeah. academics is trying to focus on sort of uh, how what is the relationship between public opinion and foreign policy decision making. Mm-hmm. And to answer the question, I'm actually going to take a step back and just think about what the relationship between public opinion and policymaking more general is more generally is mm-hmm. because um you know, political scientists for many years have asked this question. And I think it depends on a lot of things. It depends on the country, depends on the system of politics in a democratic nation in the United States. uh, We are built upon the premise that public opinion should matter, right? That public opinion should lead our leaders to make certain types of decisions that are in our best interest. But it's not really new for political scientists to say that on certain topics, that is the case more so than others at least in the U.S., right? So um, on issues of social welfare or on issues related to domestic concerns, it seems that policymakers are sometimes more responsive, whereas the relationship on foreign policy issues sometimes tends to work in the opposite direction. So because people tend to be less informed about foreign policy issues, sometimes they can have less impact on policymakers. And so sometimes that means that the policymakers themselves can sort of lead or elites at least can lead the public in terms of how they feel about foreign policy issues. And so what you've, I mean, what you've asked is something that I think the answer, the jury is still out on. Um, But I will say this, it was like the 1960s when research that said that, you know, Americans and are you know not very well informed on foreign policy and so maybe they have less impact on foreign policy decision making came out and since that time over the past 50 years we've seen sort of an evolution of work that actually shows that in certain cases Americas have stronger or more well developed opinions on foreign policy. So often on uh, foreign policy related to uh, going to war or to being involved in military conflict, there are very strong opinions because that starts to bring to bring up questions of whether, you know, someone you know is going to be sent abroad or whether they're going to be there's going to be loss of life. Um, 
Americans can have opinion when it comes to things like our trade relationships, because that at the end of the day affects, you know, America's financial well-being. Um, And so it does seem that actually Americans do have some sense of, you know, the (laughs) what they prefer on those larger issues. And then the relationship between the public and the government is one of sort of back and forth, right? And so definitely policymakers pay attention to how people are feeling on those issues. Um, I think it depends on the specific policy issue to determine whether the public's going to actually push the government to do one thing or another, or whether the government's actually going to uh, slowly guide the public in terms of uh, what decisions should be made. Well, speaking a little bit on the uh, looking within China as well, of course they they have uh, just curious to see what the the trend has been there, and I and then I know and assume it's been going in a similar direction, where there's been an increasingly negative impression of the United States and its people. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what you've uh, seen in terms of trends happening in China? Sure, I've been, I've definitely been eager to to read scholarship and work that talks about um, public opinion trends in China and how Chinese the Chinese public is feeling about the United States. And this actually veers uh, outside of my own original right. research no, yes, because yeah. I haven't done any surveys in China. Yeah. But for example, the University of San Diego has a China data lab and they do regular surveys in China. Um, one of their surveys showed that between June 2019 and May 2020, there was a degree decrease in the degree t- to which uh, Chinese citizens uh saw the U.S. favorably, right? And so they basically asked people on a scale of 1 to 10 how they felt about the United States. Uh, The score was 5.8 in 2019, June 2019. And then the score became 4.8. So it went down exactly one point by May 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, unfortunately, we're not just seeing on the U.S. side a decrease in favorability of use towards China, but we're also seeing in China a decrease in favorability of use towards the United States. Obviously, a different uh, type of relationship there between the Chinese public opinion and uh, the decisions that its government makes, but uh, right. also another fascinating area of um, of research. Well, uh, so now here we, we stand here at um, – you know, there's a lot more uh, optimism right now with regards to the pandemic. We have, uh, you know, vaccines that are making their way out uh, across the world, and uh, you know, things are are looking up. Uh, there's some some reason for hope on on that front. And uh, where, what do you see? You know, looking ahead here, um, there's a new administration here in in the states and um you know a lot of a lot of work to be done in Sino-US relations and what what do you see um looking ahead as uh, some of the 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 key priorities to improve the relationship um obviously these are two countries that have a there's a huge amount at stake there's uh talking about uh Without, in my mind, at least, this is the 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 greatest challenge uh, in our lifetimes, right? This this uh, this relationship and the, the extent to which the two these two countries can sort of figure it out and uh, not not go to war, right? Can can maintain a peaceful relationship um, and continue to 
to uh, promote, um, they can promote prosperity and uh, and 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 have a positive, constructive relationship that's going to benefit not only uh, each other but everybody in the world. So, so what what do you see as some of the uh, priorities in the in the next uh, few months and and years ahead? I will first say that on the public opinion front, in terms of U.S. public opinion towards China, unfortunately, even since the time that I wrote the piece, I wrote the piece for NBR in 2020, the end of the year, November 2020, and now it's March 2021, and already we're starting to see even more negative sentiment towards uh, towards China. So Pew released another poll in early March, and um, the results looked a little bit dire. Uh, the top line results of that poll said that almost nine and 10 Americans were of the opinion that China is a competitor or an enemy as opposed to being a partner. It was 89% specifically. Um, and there are also big concerns about many elements of the bilateral relationship. And so now that President Biden has come into office, I think the question is, what can be done from here? Um, On the public opinion side, there's really a question of, is negative sentiment so entrenched and so deep that it will be difficult to make uh, any headway away from the really antagonistic and and, uh, friction-filled relationship that we had with under the Trump administration. But even beyond how public opinion affects the situation, there are still a number of questions that are on the table, right? Because uh, most of the Trump administration's four years were filled with a trade war uh, that involved the United States and China. Uh, We now have to decide what happens in terms of trade between the two countries. This is a major issue for both countries because we are so reliant on each other. And the friction that happened during the trade uh, during the trade war has been damaging to both sides of the equation. It's been damaging to both the United States and China. But beyond that, there are other things to think about. Um, I think that one thing that's on the minds of many Americans right now is human rights. Um, it was interesting because uh, survey results have shown that uh, at the end of the day, Republicans and Democrats tend to have different viewpoints on what the major issues with China really are and what the biggest concerns are. But one area of alignment for both Democrats and Republicans is the issue of human rights. And mm-hmm. so as we look at um, you know, a China that uh, is engaging in in practices that many people are very concerned about. For example, the uh, I'm doing air quotes right now, but what the Chinese government would call re-education camps um, in Xinjiang uh, that bring in in Muslim Uyghurs uh, have caused a lot of concern for people in the West, including the United States. And so there is a question mark. There's an open question of um, how the United States will react to those. The United States under the Trump administration called what was happening in Xinjiang a genocide. Recently, the Biden administration has said that a genocide has occurred in Xinjiang as well. So there was a point at which they were reconsidering that decision and then came out and said, yes, what happened in Xinjiang was a genocide as well. Um, And so 
that may have implications for how the Biden administration will uh, approach China when it comes to human rights. There are other big issues to figure out. Our day-to-day relations, things like business relationships, educational exchange between the two countries have been affected by the disruption that was caused by uh, the very contentious relationship for the past four years. And so there are major things that have to be figured out. And unfortunately, I can't tell you exactly how everything will turn out right now. I can say this. At the end of the day, I think that much of what happens will depend on how the administration decides to approach these issues. And so it's interesting because my work looks at public opinion and some of your previous questions talked about how much public opinion affects the policymaking sphere and things like that. I think that the decisions that the Biden administration makes will need to be accompanied by, uh, you know, the requisite amount of uh, sort of public speeches and uh, sort of explanation of the way forward. And in this case, I think that that will be the thing that's most impactful for the relationship, not necessarily any pressure that's put on the administration by the public. One other thing that I think does matter when it comes to public opinion and sort of public sentiment in the United States right now as related to China is actually the boomerang effect or the backfiring that the way that people are feeling about China has an impact on uh, treatment of Asian Americans in the United States. And so over the past year, since the outbreak of the coronavirus, we have seen this massive uptick in anti-Asian racism and anti-Asian hate crimes targeting even very elderly members of the Asian American community in places all across the United States. And so that's sort of the ugly side of public opinion, right? We often think of public opinion as, you know, being the will of the people, something to be prized, something that... uh, government should pay attention to and sort of uh, lift up. But the other side of the story is that sometimes public opinion lends itself to to groupthink. Um, You know, in this case, the dregs of racism that still exists in our society have affected the way that people are thinking about Americans, about their fellow Americans, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, the Biden administration seems to care about this issue, I think within the first week of Biden being in office, there was a memorandum release that was condemning and combating racism and xenophobia against Asian Americans in the U.S. Uh, This is an area where I think that regardless of what happens with China itself, the U.S. government will have to really be in touch with the American people, right? Because this is something we've got to root out. It mm-hmm. cannot, it cannot exist, right? It is unquestionably harmful to the fabric of our democracy, but it's also specifically harmful to these groups of people who are being targeted, targeted sometimes violently in the United States. And so um, it's unfortunate that sometimes issues of issues of international relations and the ways that we feel about international relations actually have impact on the ways that we uh, treat groups within our society. But in this particular case, that's something that the Biden administration has already shown leadership on, but it's going to have to continue to really target specifically so that no matter what happens with China, we can really start to really hone in with hone in on and fix the issue of the racism that's happening right now. Agreed. This is certainly an issue of the highest priority. Uh, Well, Naima, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we wish you all the best as you begin your new position at Princeton. 
Thank you so much for having me. Okay, take care. You too. This podcast was produced by Ian Smith. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bell Mother Bayou. Website development was led by Sandra Moore. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight. 